1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The subscription platform OnlyFans imposed a ban on sexually explicit content, and then suddenly walked it back. What's behind the flip-flop? A growing tension between firms that deal in the pornographic and those that handle the payments. And you can get just about anything 3D printed these days, even houses. It's not just a gimmick. The layer-by-layer construction method saves time and money and promises to have far better environmental credentials than the old-fashioned way. But first... The message from intelligence services was clear and specific. Expect an attack at the Kabul airport by a branch of the Islamic State terror group. Thursday afternoon, it happened. Two suicide bombings, one at a gate outside the airport and a second at a hotel nearby, ripped through crowds who'd thronged to the only real way out of Afghanistan.
0: The attack on the Abbey Gate was followed by a number of ISIS gunmen who opened fire on civilians and military forces. We believe it is their desire to continue those attacks, and we expect those attacks to continue.
1: More than 90 people, mostly Afghan civilians, died in the explosions, according to some reports. Thirteen were American service members, the first to die in combat in the country in a year and a half. These American service members who gave their lives It's an overused word, but it's totally appropriate here. We're heroes. Heroes who've been engaged in a dangerous, selfless mission to save the lives of others. Meanwhile, that mission continues, but time to evacuate foreigners and fleeing Afghans is running short ahead of America's withdrawal deadline of August 31st. Never mind that this horrifying spectacle diminishes America's reputation, It's an empowering one for jihadist movements all over the world. And an object lesson in what happens when the insurgents become the rulers.
2: I think the bombings that we've just had around the Hamad Karzai International Airport tell you just how hard it will be for the Taliban to control all of their territory.
1: Edward Carr is The Economist's deputy editor.
2: This is a chaotic picture in which a number of groups are floating around. And the group that has carried out these bombings, Islamic State, Khorasan province, is a sworn enemy of the Taliban. And indeed, um, the Taliban took its leader out when they emptied the jails as they took over the country and killed him.
1: And and how much more do we know about ISKP?
2: Well, we know that they are extremely violent and their tactics are to be more violent than anybody else. And one of the features of, of Islamic State generally is it's much more willing to kill other Muslims in its actions than, say, al-Qaeda was. So it's very violent. It's the descendant and offspring of the group that for a few years after 2014 had a caliphate around Mosul. And it, it will try and kill Americans and it will kill Afghans too.
1: And clearly there had been fear that that terror groups, including al-Qaeda and Islamic State, would rise up in the vacuum left by America. What does it tell you that this kind of terrorism is already happening?
2: Well, I don't think it's surprising that it should happen so suddenly. You know, things are very fluid. Think of how quickly the Taliban managed to take control of the country. They haven't had time to set up structures. You know, they haven't formed a government yet. So it's chaotic and in chaos small groups determined to cause violence and willing to die can carry out these sorts of attacks.
1: And what about jihadist sentiment in in a broader sense? How much impact will what's going on in Afghanistan now have on terror organizations outside it?
2: Well, of course, one question is, does Afghanistan itself become a base for terror? And we've already seen locally it may do. People may be attracted there. The Taliban does not have a, a record of taking on al-Qaeda, even though it does take on Islamic State. But I think the main influence will be inspirational. There are Islamic jihadist groups across the world, from Nigeria over through the Middle East into South Asia and Southeast Asia and countries like Malaysia and the Philippines. And for these groups to see, you know, the Taliban, a sort of ragtag nationalist jihadist outfit a superpower packing is a source of great inspiration. If you believe that you are doing the will of Allah, then what greater sign of the things that you can achieve than the example that's just been set in Afghanistan?
1: And what will that look like as time goes on?
2: Well, one thing people may be worried about is that, you know, after 20 years of the war and terror following the attacks on 9-11, does that mean that we're about to see a spate of similar attacks? And of course, you cannot rule that out. But I think we should remember that staging those kinds of really complex, spectacular attacks in rich countries is much, much harder than it was. I think the real organised threat of jihadists taking territory, staging really serious and murderous attacks are likely to come where governance is poor. And those are the countries in the Sahel, in bits of South Asia and the Middle East where jihadism is a long-standing problem that's actually got worse in the 20 years since 9-11.
1: And so what can be done to, to prevent the threats where they are more pointed?
2: Well, what's been happening has been a certain amount of Western engagement. So a good example of this is the Sahel, where France has had a number of troops providing intelligence and air support and special forces to try and deal with the Islamist insurgency. The thing is that those campaigns have been going on for a long time now, and there's a sense that they're not making a whole load of progress. And so France has signaled that it's winding down that campaign, not, not stopping it completely, but winding it down somewhat. And similarly with American troops in Somalia. So the Western support for these operations is diminishing at exactly the time when this enormous boost will have come from Afghanistan.
1: But the lesson in in Afghanistan would be that strictly military campaigns against this kind of jihadism aren't especially effective.
2: That's absolutely right. I mean, one has to think about what are the conditions in which these jihadist groups thrive. And they are ones of poor governments, of corruption, court systems that don't work, of local armed forces that themselves abuse the people they're supposed to be protecting. And so I think ultimately it's going to require better governance in the countries that are particularly vulnerable. And and that's a very easy thing to say and a really hard thing to do. And in this context of governance, it'll be really interesting to see how the Taliban themselves
1: govern. But what about the, the Taliban governance in the immediate sense while this panicked evacuation is still going on?
2: Yes, there are real questions about The perimeter security that the Taliban were supposed to be providing. The worst interpretation that some people are speculating is that elements of the Taliban even let these IS people through. That's denied, but even the most benign interpretation is that the Taliban weren't up to the job. And you have this very strange irony that the United States, who was just fighting the Taliban, are now relying on the Taliban to provide perimeter security around the airport. And you could see. In the speech that President Joe Biden gave last night, just how much he was affected by the consequences of that, the death of 13 service members of the United States.
1: The lives we lost today were lives given in the service of liberty, the service of security, the service of others, in the service of America. The biggest single day's carnage in a decade. To those who carried out this attack, as well as anyone who wishes America harm, know this. We will not forgive. We will not forget. We will hunt you down and make you pay. So what happens now?
2: So now we have a a couple of things. The first is that the United States has promised to act against Islamic State for having committed this. They will do that, I suspect, after the evacuation's over. That means they have this small window in which to get the rest of the people out. That is a very, very tall order. And then there are the tens of thousands of Afghans who help the West, are vulnerable now that the Taliban are in power. And for them, the future looks exceedingly bleak.
1: Thanks very much for your time, Edward.
2: Thanks a lot, Chase.
3: Hi, I'm Kira, and I've been a content creator on OnlyFans for a couple years, but in the adult industry for about seven now.
1: Kira B is a sex worker on the website OnlyFans, an online subscription platform.
3: I have social anxiety, which means that I would struggle a lot to get a quote-unquote normal job. I'm actually a very shy and monogamous person in real life, so doing sex work online is actually a really nice outlet for me.
1: The site has become popular with millions of people looking for pornographic content and those creating it.
3: I am lucky enough to rank in the top 0.04% of creators on the website, which means that I can earn anywhere between 80 dollars and $120,000 per month.
1: Last week, the site announced that from October, it would ban the explicit content that dominates it.
3: It was quite confusing to see The initial media stories about OnlyFans may be banning adult performers because we didn't hear anything from OnlyFans themselves first.
1: But almost as suddenly as it announced the ban, on Wednesday, the company reversed its decision.
3: We seem to be safe for now, but I should imagine at some point in the future they will consider this change again. I don't think anyone feels very safe right now on OnlyFans.
1: This saga is part of a larger conflict between websites that host adult content and the firms behind their payments and financing.
4: OnlyFans has been around for five years now, but it was really in 2020 that it began to boom. During all the lockdowns uh, during the pandemic, lots of people went online trying to make money from home. Tom Wainwright is our media editor. And so these days it has something like 130 million users and more than 2 million people uploading content. And the revenues that it expects to get this year of over a billion dollars mean that it's one of Britain's most successful internet startups.
1: So that's millions of users and contributors who were taken aback by this ban on explicit content. Why was it put in place in the first place?
4: Well, you're right. It was a big surprise. And the explanation that the company gave was that it was due to requests by banks and payment providers. And the chief executive later gave an interview to the Financial Times in which he named several banks as having made their life difficult by blocking payments or closing accounts, that kind of thing.
1: But then the ban was reversed. What's going on behind the flip-flop?
4: Yeah, well, I mean, it took less than a week for them to do this. And they said that this was following reassurances that they'd received from their banking partners. So it sounds as though behind the scenes they've had a chat with some of the companies that help do their payments and card processing and so on, and reached some kind of agreement where they will allow them to continue on their current footing for now at least.
1: And what's the wider picture here? Why would those banking partners have made life difficult for
4: OnlyFans? This is just the latest episode in a long-running trend in which it seems that banks and payment providers and so on are taking a slightly tougher approach to adults-oriented websites in general. We've got Mastercard saying that from October onwards it's going to impose a new set of conditions on the banks that deal with these websites, it's going to require them to certify that the sites in question are meeting various conditions like keeping proof of age on file, reviewing content before publication, which is not always an easy thing to do, particularly for smaller sites. And the upshot is that these sites are finding it pretty difficult to function, really, because the number of card processing companies isn't all that big. And so last year, for instance, we saw Visa and Mastercard both say that they were no longer going to work with Pornhub, which is one of the internet's biggest porn sites. Pornhub has moved to cryptocurrency as a result of that. So this nervousness from the financial companies has in turn spooked investors who might have been otherwise thinking about investing in OnlyFans.
1: So this was as much about allaying fears of investors as it was about placating the banks?
4: There are definitely two parts to it, yeah. OnlyFans has found it very difficult to get investment. And in a way, this is a surprise. I mean, it's been growing incredibly quickly and it's part of this sector known as the creator economy, which is very fashionable at the moment among Tech investors, but no one's really wanted to go near it. And I think it's partly due to reputational risk. You know, lots of funds don't really want to get involved in adult stuff in general. But the other thing is that the stance that these payment companies have taken means that there's a big risk hanging over any site like OnlyFans because if MasterCard or Visa or any other big financial firm were to withdraw its services at short notice, that could really limit the business pretty drastically. And so I think a lot of investors are looking at OnlyFans and and perhaps companies like it and thinking, you know, actually right now it's just too risky to pile in at a time when the payment providers that it relies on entirely are in a rather skittish mood about this whole industry.
1: But if OnlyFans is dominated by porn, what would it have to offer if it had to give porn up?
4: Well, that's a good question. I the answer maybe not all that much. I mean, some people joked that it was a bit like a strip club pivoting to focus on the chicken wings. I mean, it has some kind of non-porn influencers. You see fitness coaches on there, athletes.
0: I joined OnlyFans to help people like you become the best versions of themselves that they can be. On my page, I will post mostly stuff about nutrition, exercises that you're going to do, stretches that you're going to do. Pilates is
4: You know, there are one or two celebrities, Floyd Mayweather, the boxer, Cardi B, the rapper, a few people like this, but they're relatively few and far between. And I think the risk for OnlyFans is that without all the sex stuff, they've just got a load of fairly bland influencers.
1: So given all that, OnlyFans relies on its contributors, its adult performers, just as much as those performers rely on the platform.
4: Yeah, I think so. I mean, more so, if anything, because the contributors have got other sites that they can go to if they want to. And in fact, in the past few days during this hiatus, lots of them have been checking out the competition. We spoke to one contributor, Kira, who told us a bit about how she's planning to branch out and look at some other sites in future.
3: A lot of us are jumping ship, but I think we are trying to diversify and on more platforms rather than just all our eggs in the OnlyFans basket. And I know that there's another platform called Fansly that a great deal of us are moving to. Seems a really positive and sex work positive website and it's got a lot more features.
4: The Adult Performance Artists Guild, which is an American union for sex workers, has been offering advice on how people can switch to these other sites and transfer all their stuff. And I spoke to a lawyer who said that sex workers that he is in contact with have been circulating Excel spreadsheets with the names of these alternative websites comparing their payout rates, their privacy policies, all of these things. So I think that from OnlyFans' point of view, this week has really served to put all of its contributors on notice that their business could be taken away from them at any moment and shown them that really diversifying is is probably a sensible thing to start doing.
1: Tom, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. One and a half billion people, more than a fifth of the world's population, lack adequate accommodation. House building comes at a number of costs, money, time, and increasingly importantly, environmental harms. So there's plenty of hopes behind a solution that tackles all three.
5: The idea of 3D printing has been around since the early eighties, but it's something that started to gain traction in housing in the last few years.
1: Vinjeru Mkandawire is our global property correspondent.
5: 3D printing allows us to build homes faster and cheaper, which makes them more affordable, and crucially, it's better for the environment.
1: We've certainly heard about 3D printing in lots of other contexts, but how does it work in the case of printing a house?
5: So houses are printed in much the same way that smaller objects would be printed. You have a printer that builds the walls by squeezing out the construction material. It could be a concrete mixture, it could be something else. It's squeezed out through a nozzle, layer by layer, and it hardens to form a structure. It takes fewer people to operate than you would have on a construction site, so that keeps costs down. And because these printers can print more complex shapes than would otherwise be achieved by conventional methods, it actually allows for greater architectural flexibility.
1: And so what is a 3D-printed house actually like?
5: It's much like any other home. So at the moment, 3D printing is limited to just the external walls of houses. And there are already people living comfortably in 3D-printed houses. The tenants of Europe's first 3D-printed home in the Netherlands, for example, moved in a few weeks ago.
1: And you say this way of going about things is much better for the environment.
5: Yeah, so buildings and construction are currently responsible for around 39% of global carbon emissions. So companies like 14 Trees, which operates in Malawi and Kenya, they say that their methods generate 70% less carbon dioxide. Mighty Buildings in California, for example, claims that it has a near zero waste process and that by prefabricating its products in a factory, it reduces the number of lorry journeys. And that can actually slash the carbon dioxide emitted per home by up to two tons.
1: So you mentioned the Netherlands and Malawi. Is this the sort of thing that we'll see all
5: over the world? We're not seeing this happen at scale yet, but it is starting to happen in lots of different countries around the world. And the interesting thing is that it's happening in both rich and poor countries. We're seeing housing estates emerging in California. And I've looked at another example in Mexico, where a charity called New Story have built homes for the homeless using 3D printing.
1: But where does all this novel technology fit into the question of of regulation? This is a sector that a lot of regulators have their hands in.
5: Yeah, I mean, regulators and buyers, first and foremost, need to be convinced that these homes are safe. And because this is also new, there will inevitably be questions about the quality and finish of homes that are printed. At the moment, most construction codes still need to be tweaked to accommodate them, but there are changes being made to the International Residential Code to that effect, which has actually been adopted by every American state except Wisconsin. But that said, most countries have yet to come up with country-specific standards.
1: And what about on the consumer end of this, with all of these benefits, how much do people actually want 3D-printed homes?
5: It may seem like a long way off for a lot of people, but... If you look at California, I think it offers the most striking example. Polari homes and mighty buildings, more than 82 of their 3D printed homes have been snapped up and there are over a thousand buyers on the waiting list and it costs a lot less than the standard home. So they are more affordable in this sense, but I think their strongest selling point is that they're environmentally friendlier.
1: Vinjeru, thank you very much for your time.
5: Thanks for having me.
1: all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors this week are Kim Gittleson and Chris Impey, and our sound engineer Saul Rivers. Our senior producers are Hannah Mourinho, Duncan Barber, and Sam Colbert. Our producers are Stevie Hertz and William Warren, and assistant producers Jason Hoskin and Abisoya Oshindiro, with extra production help this week from John Joe Devlin and Jolene Goffin. We'll all see you back here on Monday.